Many thanks for uh, coming this evening. Uh, I've got my other glasses, I can see who I'm addressing. Um, my name is uh, Toby Dodge, and I'm the uh, director of the Middle East Centre. But more importantly, I teach in the International Relations Department, and uh, which is more, I think, apposite to today's uh, topic. I thank you all for coming, especially because tonight is the, uh, the penultimate day before the end of term, and the International Relations Department is holding its uh, department party. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this because you'll all run out. So you've <laughs> sacrificed free wine and peanuts to hear the, um, the, the, the brilliant insights of, of my colleagues here. But more importantly, what we are here today and, uh, to, is to celebrate, I think, the launch of a very important book, uh, The Politics of International Intervention, The Tyranny of Peace, uh, edited by... Uh, Dr. Kuhn and uh, Dr. Turner, two of my colleagues, I must declare an interest, I have uh, a chapter in it. So what we thought we'd do is bring together some of the key authors uh, to discuss um, the, the, the topics that this book uh, brings up. If you could all just briefly introduce yourselves first from the end of the table coming down. Hi, I'm Caroline Hughes from University of Bradford. Uh, Amanda Turner, Director of Kenyon Institute in East Jerusalem. I'm uh, Chris Phillips from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Mike Pugh, retired from Bradford, but visiting professor of Nijmegen. I'm Florian Kuhn, until the end of the month, um, professor for comparative politics in Magdeburg and then um, in Hamburg at Helmut Schmidt University as of April 1. Excellent. So we're all going to speak very briefly about the, the how long are we going to each speak for? So I can. Minutes ten minutes people. each, do you think? Okay, so everyone else is going to speak for ten minutes. I should speak for two or three minutes before making sure everyone keeps to time. Uh, I've just flown in uh, last night, which uh, um, indicates my rather bleary-eyed look from a, a research trip to Iraq, to Suleimania, Baghdad, and Najaf. And if, if anything, I think, sums up the message of this book, the, the big picture that this book is um, painting, it's the profound crisis, multi-dimensional crisis that Iraq faces. As I landed in Baghdad, uh, a radical group of Islamists, basically made up of what we used to call in the old days lumpen proletariat, stormed the green zone and seized parts of the ruling seats of government in Iraq. Now, why did they do that? They did that because the ruling elites in Iraq, the prime minister, the last three prime ministers before him, and the cabinet, which is made up of nearly the same people who've ruled at Baghdad since the governing council was formed right at the, in the aftermath of the invasion, have no legitimacy whatsoever. I think it's fair to say that the ruling elites of Iraq are delegitimized to the extent that they're loathed by the vast majority of the Iraqi population. Now, how can this situation come to pass? Also, if we add to that, Iraq's gonna run out of money within the next eight months and has gone begging to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the ramifications of that other of my colleagues will touch upon. And that the direct policy of the post-invasion government has given birth to the, to the Islamic State and its seizure at one point of, of uh, nearly uh, uh, over a third of the territory of Iraq. What happened here? And I think you can trace that cataclysmic situation, a political, military and economic crisis at the heart of post-2003 Iraq, right back to the policy implemented by the invading um, US-led coalition and their attempt to radically reform 
state-economy-society relations in the aftermath of the invasion and regime change. Now, if we pull the focus back whenever we've launched these types of arguments, there's a snigger, an embarrassed shuffling of feet amongst policymakers and those who proselytize and drive what we would call liberal interventionism. And with a fliff of the hand, they say, oh, Iraq's different. We, Blair, we blame Tony Blair and uh, George W. Bush, aberrations in the international system. What I'd like to argue today, and I think this, this issue will be brought up in different case studies and across, that Iraq <coughs> was, I would have liked to have thought, the high watermark of a liberal intervention that started in the aftermath of the Cold War and reached its peak in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can di directly trace the failure of the post-war, uh, post-regime change order back to ideological, practical trends that were tested out in the ex-Yugoslavia, um, in Africa, in interventions in Africa, in interventions um, across the wider Middle East. So the point that this book makes, I think, and Mandy's going to pick up a bit in more detail, is there is a trend of post-intervention state building failing. And what we want to do is tease out why that is and how it could possibly be stopped. And on that moment, I'll hand over to our speaker. Talking of Mr. Blair, how do I put this into full? <coughs> uh, thank you, first of all, to the Middle East Centre for hosting this. It's always a great pleasure to come and speak at the university that I studied at 20 years ago now. Um, so, in the 10 minute slot that I've got here, I want to give a general, very brief overall introduction to the book some of the main themes and the common threads that we see through uh, most of the chapters in the book. Uh, you'll hear um, from a sample of these tonight. Um, now, we wanted to try and include as many as possible because I think that there is some very interesting themes that emerged from us all working together. So I want to begin by showing you this quote from Tony Blair, our former uh, Prime Minister, and until last year, uh, my neighbour in East Jerusalem, uh, in the Middle East Quartet. In April 2014, at a keynote address in London at the <coughs> financial media organisation Bloomberg, Blair stated, so we look at the issue of intervention or not and seem baffled. We changed the regime in Afghanistan and Iraq, put soldiers on the ground. We changed the regime in Libya through air power. In Syria, we call for the regime to change we encourage the opposition to rise up. Then there has been the so-called Arab Spring. At first, we jumped in to offer our support to those on the street. We are now bemused and bewildered that it hasn't turned out quite how we expected. Now, I think Blair's speech is, is very interesting for, for two reasons. First of all, Blair identifies and voices the confusion shown by many Western policymakers over why interventions have turned out so badly. And in the book, we show that from Cambodia to Afghanistan, Palestine to Mali, these interventions have not achieved the results that these interveners desired. Now, secondly, Blair's speech also shows us that international elites will, I think, continue to misunderstand why these interventions fail and why they will continue to lead to such tragic situations for example, as we've seen in Iraq and Libya. And I think this is because 
Western elites, like Blair, will continue to blame local populations, or in other words, those experiencing the intervention, for preventing peace, for creating instability, and for wrecking chaos on the order that they are trying to impose. Now, these same Western elites continue to disregard the central role of the type and experience of intervention upon these societies as, as uh, just briefly outlined by Toby in the situation in Iraq. And I think they'll continue to ignore the impacts of imposing a particular type of order. Now Blair wasn't interested in the complexities of Iraq and the potential for destabilization that would come in the wake of the invasion, the occupation, and the social engineering project that was implemented and so well documented by people like Toby. And this fact was revealed by George Joffe, one of the Iraq specialists, who advised Blair in the run-up to the invasion, as indeed so, so did Toby. Now, Blair instead preferred to see it all as a crusade against evil, much like his US counterpart at the time, President George W. Bush. And this is something that uh, Toby elaborates on in his chapter in the book. So one of the aims of our book was to explore the theories and the concepts that underpin and direct the politics and practices of intervention. We wanted to try and understand why statesmen like Blair hold the views that they do. And a number of chapters in the first section of the book do this. And you'll hear uh, from a couple of these contributions tonight, um, Florian and Mike. Now, our understanding of intervention is not limited to military intervention. Um, intervention takes many forms and includes a spectrum of tools and practices that are all designed to structurally influence and change the policies and polities uh, of other nations. Now, these, these policies and practices include the old-style boots on the ground and occupation, but they also include blockades and sanctions and diplomatic and financial support for certain political elites and not others, as well as the aid and the economic policies that we see implemented through peace-building missions. We all ask the basic question, what is the type of stability and peace being pursued and for whom? We wanted to try and understand the deep social grammar of intervention. In addition to exploring the theories and the concepts that underpin these various forms of intervention and their practical implementation, we were also interested in the political economy of the communities who were experiencing the intervention. We wanted to understand how these societies perceive and deal with intervention. We wanted to understand their political and economic priorities because these often diverge from those of the intervener. And so one of the key things that Florian and I wanted to do is to put a heavy emphasis on empirical research from people who'd studied the countries in question for many years. So in the book, we have eight case study countries. I haven't even got a copy of the book to show. <laughs> in the book, we've got um, eight case study countries that cover a multitude of intervention experiences since the end of the Cold War. And we'll hear about uh, three of these tonight, um, Cambodia, Iraq, and Syria. The subtitle, as uh, Toby says, to the book is The Tyranny of Peace. Now, Florian and I chose that for one main reason. All of the chapters in our book highlight the violence inherent in these attempts to police a highly unequal international system and enforce socioeconomic and political changes from the outside in the quest to build a particular type of peace. 
Basically, the type of stability and peace being pursued is one that's designed to ensure the continuation of the Western-dominated international system, as well as the expansion, imposition and protection of capitalist social forms. Intervention constitutes a core method by which the capitalist West tries to both integrate the periphery into the capitalist system while protecting itself from the conflicts emanating from these transformations that are going on in the periphery. Now, I want to emphasize that we understand this as a deep sociological grammar of intervention. It won't explain, uh, directly explain every uh, individual experience of intervention, but it does explain why intervention is such a key and constant in the international arena. <clears throat> and so while the debate on the liberal peace is important to us, uh, and many of us here have actually engaged with it, in this book we argue that it is, it's actually just the most recent conceptualization of this deep grammar of intervention where multilateral institutions have become vehicles for Western interests portrayed as universal values. Now, Florian's chapter explores the origins and development of the dominant liberal conception of peace. And he argues that while it has been turned into a policy and practice driven by a narrative of nonviolence, it actually serves to disguise violent techniques of global governance employed to manage the security of the structure while extending its reach. Mike's chapter is a survey of international operations fostered via or by the UN since the end of the Cold War. He argues that two aspects show that what is being pursued is an aggressive peace, namely the militarization and codification of violence as peace and the institution of a hegemonic, coercive political economy of peace building. Both aspects of this aggressive peace, he argues, protects the political economy preferred by institutions of power. Caroline's contribution is an analysis of the first UN peacekeeping mission with a complex peacebuilding mandate, namely the United Nations mission in Cambodia. She argues that the usual criticisms made of this mission, that it didn't have enough power to deal with spoilers, is wrong. She argues that one of the main reasons for the development, uh, the problems that developed in Cambodia was that the mission focused on promoting individualistic liberal forms of citizenship, which undermined collective rights and collective forms of struggle. And it also focused on embedding property ownership, which legitimized and helped to underpin processes of primitive accumulation by a corrupt elite. Toby's chapter focuses on the US invasion and occupation of Iraq. And he unpacks the ideas underpinning the dominant US decision makers, particularly the concept of the diabolical enemy image, which drove the policy of outright subjugation of Ba'athists and later extended to the Sunni Muslim community in general. All this, uh, as he's already argued, drove the country into civil war and led to the emergence, emergence of Daesh, also uh, known in the West as uh, ISIS or ISIL. Chris's chapter, uh, which we'll finish on today, I always feel very sorry for Chris because it's such a moving ball, Syria, at the moment. Um, his chapter focuses on the first three years of the Syrian revolution and its descent into civil war. And it analyzes the international and regional responses to an expanded understanding of intervention and through comparisons with the debates regarding intervention in Libya. My chapter in the book analyzes the peacebuilding interventions in the occupied Palestinian territory 
since the signing of the Oslo Peace Accord in 1993, but obviously due to time constraints, I'm not going to go into that here, but maybe I can answer some questions from the audience. And so I'm just going to conclude with a couple of uh, key points from our collective analyses. Firstly, that intervention is an embedded international social practice inherent in an international system that seeks to police global differences while ensuring the West's privileged position. The second main point that we make in the book is that the domestic pacification of societies and the refashioning into capitalist social forms within this hierarchy of international inequality is a repressive endeavour. We argue that the peace which is being advanced is and imposed and policed is actually very tyrannical, aggressive and unequal peace. It's a peace that benefits some at the expense of others. Now, I didn't want to uh, stop without mentioning, obviously, the carnage we saw in Brussels yesterday. We might get to the point where this aggressive, unequal peace may soon benefit no one. Uh, we witness the human waves of misery, for example, on the shores of Europe, uh, while people flee violence and terror in the Middle East. But despite the heightened tension that's created by um, understanding these processes and events, I really think we need to keep in mind that Daesh emerged out of the chaos and violence of the invasion of Iraq and the policies of the occupation. Um, and it won't be defeated by bombs or closing borders or better surveillance techniques. <coughs> But the shifts in international policy and practice that would be required to undermine and defeat such a force, I think are so huge and will require such a massive transformation in thinking that we may, we may well have to learn to live with similar acts of violence in Europe, just as other populations have had to elsewhere across the world. All of us that contributed to this book are in no doubt that the visions and strategies for a new, inclusive and pacific type of society and international system are, are incredibly urgent. Um, this is not a utopian call. I think this is a necessity. Um, now I'll uh, pass on to my co-editor, Florian Kuhn, who's going to talk about his chapter. Thank you for listening. Thanks for coming here. I'm, I'm, I'm really very happy that we can be here and present our, our research here. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Um, I've never been to the LSE before, so it's also a, 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 a very good you know, endeavor to you know, hear so much about the LSE. It's a different thing to, to see. Also, um, I apologize for my, for if, I, if I appear confused, that's my usual mode, <laughs> but it is enhanced today because I just came back from the US and I'm still a bit tired. Um, I'm what, what I'm what I'm presenting is is the uh, a chapter from the book, um, which which basically also from a, coming from obviously from a similar perspective, <laughs> um, in, because um, I, I feel we have to kind of um, unpack and and open up the discussion um, so that we don't keep repeating um, the usual narratives about about peace. Um, so really what I try to attempt in my chapter um, is, is to, to track how the term peace and the practice evolving around it um, has, has changed um, over, over the centuries, over the years, um, very much congruent with the, with the development of the modern state. Um, so I'm arguing that, that peace has turned into an ambiguous term now, 
um, which 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 is very you know very much depending on on where you come from and how much you are subjected to the su to the practices of peace. Um, it means very very different things. Um, so peace in itself um, has turned from a positive term into something that is contested. Um, it is charged with a, with a certain um, understanding of policy um, and certainly, certainly um, very much politicized even though much of Western policy is being um, conducted in the name of peace. So that's, that's where I come from. Um, as Mandy mentioned, it's obviously liberal politics that, 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 that does that, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not stopping at making yet another critique of the liberal piece, but I'm trying to embed it in the structure that it, that it comes in. And that, of course, um, has been over the centuries an enlarging state system which has its, its, its core, its seats in Europe, and then have um, been expanded through colonialism and, and economic expansion um, to the world. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the term. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it from a security community perspective. Karl Gorge and his colleagues in 1957 defined the security community as one uh, where the states within the who are part of the core of the security community um, don't wage war against each other. They have pacified societies, but they also have pacified conduct between themselves. Um, this, however, comes at the cost of an outside world that is portrayed as threatening um, to the conduct and the politics of the security community. The security community also, and this is going to become um, important in about two minutes when I, when I come near to the end of my presentation. Um, the security community communicates a lot within, it, within itself, um, but isn't as well networked, connected um, to the outside world. So there's of course, no clear boundary between the security community and the outside world. It, it fades out, but we can see very dense patterns of communication um, which uphold narratives of threat, of risk, of peace, and, 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 and all, all the, all the um, things we're looking at, um, but less so, um, but less communicates less with the outside world. Okay. Now, the, the state system consists of formerly segregated or, 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 or separate states, um, which of course share interdependencies. Um, so autonomy or, or sovereignty um, might, all, might be seen as a, as a myth, um, but it's also a, a, a guiding idea um, to understand international politics as done between states. Um, that all, the interdependencies mean that none of the states can meani meaningfully act without the other, uh, unless you're extremely powerful, and even then it makes sense to have partners, and this is exactly what the sec security community um, does. Um, the problem with that is that we have representation and the legitimization of, 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 of policies on still um, contained in national in a, in a, in a national um, uh, container understood as keeping societies within this, this container. Now I'm arguing, and this is a bit contrary to, um, to, to, to general or, or mainstream IR um, ideas, that we have a, a, an international superstructure um, that, that um, is not an inclusive one like the United Nations, but it is very much dominated by the epistemologies um, and the, the, the power 
um, of the Western states, um, who in turn, but that is another, would be another chapter, um, who in turn try to influence international law um, and international peace practice as, as, as we are defining it and, and looking at it. Mm. Now, um, obviously the way politics is conducted is um, coming from the basic idea of the protection of property. Um, if you want to protect property, you need a state um, to govern and police what's happening socially. Um, but I'm arguing the, the whole idea of the state is very much about that. Um, so also here I'm, I'm arguing it is a more general understanding of the state. A colleague of mine us usually says you only need a state if you have a fence. So if you don't have a fence, you don't need a state to protect the fence. Um, and that's, that's very much what this is about. The borders that the, the international system um, creates are of course also fences. Um, While this is the economic and political practice, it's also an ideological tool um, to justify um, what's happening there because rights derived from property and the ideals of rights-based rights individualism within the state um, becomes a justifying tool um, to measure politics against. And that, of course, is where Blair, for example, comes from um, wh when he's basically saying, well, there, is, there are these societies which haven't quite achieved that yet. Um, and from this, from this understanding of, of a lack of achievement, of a lack of rights um, being enshrined in the states, um, comes an understanding of hierarchy which allows creating something for them. As, as he said, we, we, have, we have done this to support, so you have always this paternalistic um, kind of understanding. Not always, but it, it tends to be there. How am I for time? Short for time, right? You've got three minutes. Three minutes. That that will that will be that will work. Um, now, in that sense, uh, the the idea of how we un the 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 ways we understand the state um, obviously take takes different forms. Whether we understand uh, the state of nature, as Hobbes does, as a as a very um, chaotic and and dangerous one or whether we understand the state of nature as a highly individualized one, um, there is always this kind of ideology um, that the state is the only means to create order. That is, the state creates order and thus peace um, pacification within. Um, the state, of course, because it's bounded, cannot um, create order outside it. So the security community, the conglomerate of Western states comes in um, to govern the international, um, the international <coughs> system. Um, now, in, in earlier times, peace was understood as something that, that, that was a, a divine gift. Um, peace was the absence of violence. The, 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 the horsemen of the ap apocalypse um, were a, a kind of an analogy or an, an understanding of something that comes over you by fate and you're subjected to something that you cannot influence. Now with, a, with an understanding of the, of the states being able to create their own environs, this disappears because um, by war is something that states conduct and by definition or by, by, by extension, peace is something that derives from the states as well. Um, and this is, this is of course why, why liberal peace um, understands um, its own responsibility 
um, to extend the peace that Western societies have within their state boundaries um, onto the world. Now, if we start following um, John Stuart Mill, for example, who says, well, you cannot deal with people outside of the, of, of the liberal sphere because they, for one, cannot be uh, expected to behave rationally um, because if they were rational, they would have a proper state, right? Um, and secondly, they cannot be trusted because their calculations aren't based on rationality, which again is based on, on, on economic um, considerations. Um, we see that kind of thinking in the indices of state weakness um, and the, 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 the hierarchies derived from that um, in our times. So I'm just, I'm just pinging these, these arguments um, very briefly and I'm happy to, to say more about that. Um, my final point is the, the understanding of Western responsibility um, to turn um, states and societies outside the Western security um, community into something akin to themselves um, is really what drives this expansion. Obviously, there's a, a whole lot of um, economic questions that are attached to that, which I'm not going into because I think we'll, we'll see a lot of that in, in the case studies. Um, but basically my, my main point is we have to unpack what, what peace means, how it is embedded, how, is it, how it is understood, um, and looking, it, looking at it from a, from a state practice perspective um, is a good way of, of, of seeing many of the um, tensions that the tyranny of peace brings. So I'll end here. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Mike. Thank you very much, Toby. And <coughs> thank you for the invitation and hosting. And I want to pay tribute to Mandy and um, Florian for undertaking this book. Producing an edited book is no easy uh, option, as many of you will realize. And one of the reasons I don't go to many book launches is because I feel that I'm giving a publisher something for nothing and they make a profit out of it. Uh, I, but I am really pleased to be here because of the work that you two have, have done. Uh, Mandy's already mentioned that the, the approach I took was to look at peacekeeping initially and the various forms which have got a peace prefix as mechanisms for trying to control the rest of the world. Um, by the rest of the world, I mean w the parts of the world where there is illiberalism and unrest. <coughs> now, the peace prefix is used in a whole variety of ways, peacekeeping, obviously, but peace enforcement, peace mission, peace support. Next, it'll be peace war. Um, and it's interesting that the bombing of Serbia was not called war. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what it was called, but it, but it, it was projected as something that would produce peace. But there is a disclaimer I have to make, and that is that the opportunities for the militarization of these peace interventions have been enhanced by the need to respond in humanitarian crises. In other words, there is uh, humanitarianism that is projected by the elites who are running the Security Council and so on. Uh, and that, in turn, is often a response to 
civil society pressure. Something must be done. Uh, various authors, however, have pointed out that no humanitarian intervention is for purely humanitarian reasons, that there would usually would be a mixture of reasons, some of which, of course, are strategic. Uh, so that's uh, one uh, disclaimer. Uh, the other is that <coughs> many of these operations are not run by the UN. <coughs> Indeed, uh, the majority of the 22 operations that involve uh, what is called Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, Peace Enforcement, are partnered or the UN acts as a sponsor of someone else doing it, quite often uh, NATO or the uh, Africa Union. Um, and the UN talks about operations that are partnered or underwritten in some way. Uh, but it gives those operations the kind of imprimatur of international community approval, whatever international community means, and that is a contested issue as well. And it was in the 1990s that the more powerful elements in the UN Security Council devised doctrines, doctrines that involved a spectrum of force, as they called it. And the argument was that you could move from peacekeeping to peace enforcement, or robust peacekeeping, as it's sometimes called and back to peacekeeping again. Now, the other thing I wanted to try to do was to tie this militarization of peace in with global capitalism and the structures of capitalism and the ideas associated with what makes uh, a successful political economy. And my particular case study is not the Middle East but in the Balkans and there I've uh, revealed that there is a mutually constitutive operation going on between local oligarchs who did well out of the war uh, warlords in other societies um, and those elites that come in and tell them what to do in order to run uh, a, a proper economy transform it from uh, a socialist economy or whatever the economy was before. Um, and the net effect of this is the same in Western Europe, for example, as it is in some of these um, uh, post-conflict countries. Uh, it depoliticizes the precariat. And both sets of elites are wedded to that. It increases inequality. And again, both sets of elites are interested in that. It encourages rentierism rather than production. And again, that is common to Western Europe as it is to post-conflict societies, certainly in the Balkans. And <coughs> it is keen to deprive the state of income, revenues. So this kind of welfare capitalism is about tax avoidance, about depriving the state, 
uh, but within the state, it has to protect the capital system. Uh, and in, of course, it has enormous impacts on social relations. Now, what is the connection between militarized peacekeeping and this kind of event? Um, and the answer I've come up with is that it's not necessarily direct, but the mere presence of military forces in a post-conflict country where there is the World Bank, the uh, IMF uh, sometimes, and various aid organizations, um, the donor countries and so on, <coughs> that military presence protects the international community in this post-conflict country. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of umbrella protecting uh, this transformation in the political economy. <coughs> and the fact that the military have been engaged hastens the progress that these uh, other agencies can make. And in some instances, the military actually engage in the transformation, usually in quite minor ways, but in, for example, monitoring development and reporting back to um, agencies like the UNDP. Uh, the next thing I want to say is that the chapter has definite flaws in it, uh, and two of them uh, I want to just mention. One is that I tend to regard the process as rather linear in the chapter, which it isn't. It's very fluid. There are contradictions. There are uncertainties. And there is a certain wariness. And you will, of course, appreciate that um, there have been several occasions when the what used to be called great powers have been very reluctant to get engaged, particularly after Somalia. Uh, and the United States, for example, was very reluctant to describe what happened in Rwanda as genocide. Um, and the United States did not put troops on the ground while the fighting continued in both Bosnia and in Kosovo. So there is a certain wariness, and I would suggest that actually that wariness has grown. The second flaw, I think, is that I don't disaggregate enough between the international institutions and these um, participants in um, peace operations um, because they are not united, they're not harmonious. Otherwise, the United Nations wouldn't have to invent integrated missions, as, as they're called, where the military and the various agencies are allegedly being integrated. I mean, even in uh, NATO, a well-disciplined, coordinated organization with strong command and control and all the rest of it has these disagreements where some countries don't want to go as far as other countries and may pull out, uh, and there are internal debates. So I think it is important to disaggregate these, um, these structures. And finally, let me just say that I think we are entering, as, as Mandy suggested at the beginning, a period of crisis.
because the UN, fragmented and bureaucratic as it is, lacks the competence to undertake large-scale enforcement operations. Many of those countries, often from uh, what used to be called the Third World, the Indian subcontinent and from Africa, that provide most of the troops for blue helmet operations are increasingly wary of enforcement. The Western countries don't want to get engaged in enforcement if possible. And we've had situations where in um, uh, Africa, particularly Mali and um, CAR uh, and the DRC, where enforcement has been tried, 3,000 African troops in the Force Intervention Brigade has failed to neutralize the uh, military groups that are operating in the DRC. And now we have um, the report of a new high-level panel um, last year called Uniting Our Strengths for Peace. Uh, the strap line is politics, partnerships, people. That's how people come last, anyway. Um, in which uh, Ramos uh, Horta, the uh, chair of this panel, reports that there needs to be a recoupling of UN interventions and UN-sponsored or under underwritten interventions with politics and with diplomacy. Peacekeeping used to be an arm of diplomacy when Hammarskjöld uh, was one of those who invented the idea. It was an arm of diplomacy. It has ceased to be that. It has been decoupled from political engagement. It's actually been decoupled from political understanding of what has been going on in, in various countries. Um, and so that, that is one thing that the UN is, is thinking of. Um, but I also think there is a crisis. Um, it's not just a crisis in Iraq and other countries. It's a crisis in the powerful parts of the world. We have a crisis in Europe, and it's a crisis which is a moral crisis because you could argue we no longer can claim that kind of superiority which makes us liberal that needs to be exported. The superior knowledge that leads to peace is no longer something that is easily claimed. And when I say there was a mutually constitutive development of policy in the Balkans, it's partly because we ourselves in Western Europe are depoliticized from economic issues. We are being governed in ways which increase the precariat and in ways which make it very, very difficult for people to exercise 
civil power. Uh, the, the multinational corporations and the media and so on are uh, as important as governments. So if we're looking for good governance in, uh, as an outcome of intervention, we need to look our, at our own good governance. Thank you, Mike. Caroline. Thanks. Well, thanks very much um, for including me on the, the panel. Um, so uh, my, my job is to present one of the case studies from the book, which uh, is a case study on Cambodia, which, which I wrote uh, for this uh, uh, volume. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not, not going to go into too much detail, because obviously Cambodia is a bit of an outlier in this context, not being part of the Middle East, but uh, uh, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about the, um, the specifics of the Cambodian situation, but just make a few points about how Cambodia fits with some of the ideas that we've already heard. Um, and I think, I think I'd like to make sort of three main points, really, about what, looking back at the Cambodia peacekeeping operation 1991 to 1993, and subsequent uh, development state
and has managed to sort of profit incredibly successfully from different um, different interventionary uh, actions. And we see that elite sort of switching sides strategically, kind of ducking and weaving around different international actors, uh, seeking alliances, seeking strategic alliances with different international agencies, and doing that very successfully. In fact, one of the and one of the things that um, perhaps differentiates uh, the Cambodia case from, from some of the more recent interventions that we're going to be hearing about later is that you know, as, a, as an early post-Cold War peacekeeping mission, uh, Cambodia was one of those missions that Mike was just talking about where there was a great nervousness about actually using sort of military force. It wasn't a peace enforcement mission. And there was a lot of criticism at the time. You know, in the gung ho um, sort of zeitgeist of the post-Cold War era, there was a lot of criticism that, that UNCAC, the UN Transitional Authority in Cambodia, didn't use enough force. It should have been more robust. It should have uh, made more efforts to bring the Khmer Rouge insurgents to heel and so on. Um, but I think that um, I, think, I think what's interesting is, is that we see we see the different groups, the different elite groups in Cambodia have actually been, in, in some ways, they've, they've taken on that role. When the UN uh, realised that it wasn't it wasn't able to uh, engage the Khmer Rouge through diplomatic means, and when they you know, didn't didn't quite have the um, the appetite for committing military troops to engage militarily with the insurgents. Uh, they actually allowed the, the Cambodian, uh, one of the other factions, which is now the, the, the ruling party in Cambodia, to use its own military to take that role. And so they actually supported a kind of beefing up of the Cambodian military, a sort of subcontracting, if you like, of that international role. And, uh, and that has really set the scene for the ongoing functioning of the Cambodian regime, which is still very heavily reliant on a military that is abusive, um, uh, very violent, uh, and, and increasingly entrepreneurial over huge amounts of land that have been sort of contracted uh, or awarded to the military uh, as a means of keeping the military sort of on side. So we see that the whole... Uh, the whole sort of process of state building and peace building in Cambodia actually involves a huge strengthening, strengthening of the uh, Cambodian uh, military, and that, that remains in place today. Um, having said that, I think it's also the case that we find that poor people, if you like, or civil society groups, <coughs> you know, protest groups in Cambodia, also have spent a lot of time over the last 25 years trying to also seek alliances with international actors and sometimes they've managed to do that successfully. So we have this sort of situation where the, the international intervention that we see or international agencies in Cambodia are very much the target of alliance building from both uh, local elites and sort of local kind of what we might call like the Balkan groups who are trying to um, contest the militarisation of Cambodian politics. And sometimes, sometimes Poor people are successful in that. I mean, there's been examples of you know, squatters sort of successfully using World Bank mechanisms to you know, gain concessions and, and things like this. Um, and I think, to some extent, you know, I mean, I have to say, if I was a Cambodian squatter, I'd probably rather be evicted by the World Bank than by the Cambodian <laughs> government, to be honest. Um, because at least the World Bank would give me some compensation and wouldn't just sort of knock my house down. Um, and so, certainly, there are. There are um, there are opportunities within that international intervention for civil society organisations, for poor people's groups to organise and to, to gain concessions. 
Uh, and I think because that the reason for that is because organisations like the World Bank are very concerned about the sort of legitimacy and coherence of this development enterprise of the kind of ideological enterprise, I suppose. But the point is that this is really fact against those kinds of groups. The whole, the whole thrust of international engagement in Cambodia has been stacked against poor people because, uh, because Cambodia, Cambodia, the civil society was immensely weakened by the war. Uh, and the international um, strategies, if you like, of poverty reduction that the organisations like the World Bank, like the International Labour Organisation, other organisations that I talked about in this chapter are trying to promote in Cambodia are actually stacked against poor people long term because they're very much based on uh, making Cambodia feel safe for what has turned out to be a, a mode of development that is really stimulated by dispossession. Um, and so, you know, there is much less violence in Cambodia now than there was during the war, and there is declining poverty in Cambodia, although I think you have to take the World Bank figures, you know, just view those as a slight degree of suspicion. But there has been a massive, massive inequality has emerged alongside the asset stripping of Cambodia's natural resource base, and that is the, that is the key sort of feature, I think, of the last 25 years, uh, particu and particularly over the years of the commodity boom. Um, and that has, been, uh, that, that has been facilitated by the militarization of the, well, the, the, the boosting, if you like, of the military uh, and the routine violence against labor and land activists that the military is sort of charged with in the context of Cambodia. And this is what I think has been swept under the carpet by international organizations, even while they sort of purportedly implement policies that are sort of pursuing better livelihoods and poverty reduction and all the rest of it. At the same time, this whole, you know, the, the, the sort of elephant in the room is this, is this, you know, incredible dispossession of the Cambodian poor over the same period. So I think the point is then that, that international intervention is not uncontested, and it's not without sort of paradoxes, and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not that there is never any opportunity for poor people to gain something out of it. Um, and certainly, you can see that local actors are not homogeneous enough, and neither are international ones. Uh, but that over time, what we've seen is, is a sort of adverse incorporation of Cambodia into this global economy in a way um, that has allowed really the concentration of resources in fewer and fewer hands and, and the protection of those resources then through an increasingly routine form of violence against uh, organised protest movements in Cambodia. Great, thank you, and thank you for keeping to time. Chris, in your ten minutes as the last speaker, <laughs> it's up to you to sum up the book, <laughs> <laughs> to tell the audience of its general conclusions, and then to apply that to the current situation in Syria. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. There you go. All in well, ten minutes. Well, thank you, Toby. Um, I, I think I will uh, leave it uh, to, to the, the wise words of my colleagues um, and co-panelists that have already spoken. Uh, to give you a sense of the general themes of the books. Needless to say that uh, my uh, chapter on Syria uh, uh, was intended to, to, to fit in uh, with uh, most of the, the themes that were covered, and indeed a lot of the, the subject matters that we've talked about so far, uh, I hope you'll see, uh, do apply to the Syrian case. As um, uh, Mandy mentioned at the, uh, in her introduction, uh, it's always difficult um, covering uh, a conflict that, that's ongoing. Of course, it's you know, the, the troubles of an academic pale in comparison to the absolutely horrible conditions that uh, Syrians uh, have been suffering for the last five years. Um, but 
one of the difficulties that that um, uh, uh, that you face when you when you write about this, of course, is that things constantly change. And um, I p wrote this in uh, 2014, uh, and of course, since then, uh, uh, we have seen a major military operation by uh, Russia, which, of course, on this subject of international intervention, is quite a big thing to miss out of your chapter. <laughs> However, I actually would argue that. Most of the conclusions that I put forward uh, uh, a few years ago actually still hold uh, to what's going on in Syria today because, of course, Russia's intervention shouldn't be viewed as anything strange, actually. Uh, it is more a sign of continuity than it is of change within this conflict. There was a huge amount of uh, public outcry in Western capitals about Russia's intervention in September 2015 as if it was something different, as if it was something strange. And yet, of course, uh, as I argue in this chapter, Western states, along with uh, all of Syria's neighbors, uh, and Russia and Iran, have been intervening in this conflict in some capacity since it, very, since it began in March 2011. It is in many ways, the Syrian conflict, a, a case study de rigueur of international intervention. It's just that direct military intervention, the one that seems to get people excited, has been, to an extent, limited. Um, so, what I thought I'd do uh, talk about uh, this evening in my limited uh, ten minutes is really just talk about the conclusions that I that I uh, put forward in the chapter, uh, and hopefully show that they're still sort of relevant right up to today and sort of cover to the cover the whole conflict. What I did um, in my chapter was I, I posed three questions, which I'll try and briefly answer now. The first question was why was there no direct Western military intervention. This is a big question that has, um, that has come about, is that you know, there was direct intervention in places like Libya, why wasn't there in Syria? Secondly, as I said before, I, as most of us have done in, in this volume, defined uh, intervention very broadly, not just about military intervention, and talked about non-direct intervention. So my second question was, what was the impact and what was the form of the non-direct uh, intervention that has taken place and what impact did it have on the war. And then finally, as a sort of concluding point, what does the Syria case tell us or perhaps uh, direct us in terms of what future interventions might look like in the Middle East? So those are my three uh, questions. And I'll go try and rattle through those as quickly as I can. Uh, huge subject matters, I appreciate. So this first question, why was there no direct military uh, intervention? You know, there, there was a call in August 2011 by Barack Obama, amongst other people, that Bashar al-Assad must go. That was the call. You know, official policy of the United States and Western governments was regime change. And yet, there was no direct intervention. When the same call was made about Libya, intervention took place. It didn't in Syria. Why not? Um, well, three main reasons, brief, br briefly. Firstly, um, the ideas behind direct intervention, liberal intervention that we've talked about um, in other chapters, this particularly this idea of responsibility to protect, mm -hmm. actually was exposed both in the Libya conflict and in the Syria conflict as something that really only uh, occurs when it's in line with leading states' national interests. It wasn't in leading states' national interests, not least members of the Security Council, particularly Russia and China, therefore no legal responsibility to protect could take place. Secondly, and it's related to this, because of those structures in the United Nations, uh, uh, veto member, member holding actors, Russia and China, 
were completely against the idea of regime change in Syria for different reasons and therefore ensured that no legality of any sort uh, could be attached to uh, some kind of uh, in military intervention against Syria. But most importantly, I would argue, as we've looked in other cases, like in the Balkans, like in Kosovo, legality isn't actually needed uh, for, uh, and, and Iraq, of course, for direct military intervention. So the most important factor above all was that the one actor that was capable of leading regime change, the United States, did not want to. That is probably the most important factor. And you can look at domestic American politics for that, war exhaustion after Iraq, the particular personality and worldview of Barack Obama. Also, I would argue the structural shifts in the Middle East. I think that actually after the Iraq war, a lot of uh, structural um, uh, changes were occurring, uh, bringing about what other people have called the post-American Middle East, the idea that actually the era of perceived hegemony uh, uh, um, that the United States enjoyed uh, in the 1990s was effectively shattered by the failures in Iraq. And actually, after 2011, <coughs> you saw a shift in the region whereby the US was still the most powerful actor, but other actors started moving in and uh, were willing to uh, be more ambitious and interventionist themselves. So that structural shift also limited uh, the United States action. But the most important point is the US was not willing to intervene in Syria. Therefore, there has not been any direct intervention against the Assad regime. My second question was what uh, forms of intervention have there been and as a non-direct military intervention, and what impact have, have that, has that had? That's a huge subject matter. Uh, I, it's uh, uh, a subject matter that you know, books can be written on and so on. Uh, but broadly speaking, we can say there have been three sets of international actors who have intervened in multiple different capacities using multiple different tools in this conflict. Those are the first group would be Western actors. They have intervened right from the beginning, calling for Bashar al-Assad to go in August 2011 is an intervention. Even if you do nothing else other than say Bashar al-Assad must go, that is a huge intervention. It affects the calculus of Bashar al-Assad's enemies. It affects the calculus of Bashar al-Assad's friends. It affected Russia's interpretation of the conflict. It affected Iran's interpretation of the conflict. It made Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Qatar all believe that the US was going to intervene like it did in Libya. So just saying something to then hold your hands up and say, well, we didn't intervene, is not the case. That's a huge intervention. On top of that, of course, the US did send uh, political support, we uh, uh, money, and training to uh, members of the opposition um, and, uh, and, and uh, military fighters as well. So Western intervention, clearly. Other anti-Assad states, those three I mentioned particularly, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, also huge amounts of intervention in terms of providing uh, uh, political support for the opposition, providing armed support for the opposition, uh, uh, providing money, most importantly, not preventing their own citizens for several years from sending money uh, and support to armed groups in Syria. Clear examples of intervention. And then, of course, the pro-Assad states, most notably Iran and Russia. To the extent that the Russians have actually sent their own air force into Syria, we see a clear direct intervention. The Iranian regime, uh, uh, the uh, Revolutionary, Revolutionary Guard, went into Syria, reorganized half of its military, uh, brought in uh, militia from uh, uh, Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Lebanon, and so on, to fight on side, alongside Assad's forces. Clear examples of intervention. What impact has that had? Well, I would argue, and I don't mention this in the, uh, in the chapter, but I would argue that if you look at uh, civil war literature, this is a classic case of balanced intervention whereby 
multiple external actors are putting enough into this wall to keep it going and stop each side from collapsing, I think either side would have collapsed without external support. But of course, neither side, until perhaps now with the Russian intervention, but we'll see, I personally doubt it, has actually provided enough support for one side to decisively win. So clear example of balanced intervention. And in many ways, external, external intervention has led to the continuation and prolonging of this war. It's had a huge impact. So what about my third and final question? What does this tell us about future interventions in the Middle East? Well, it's difficult. We don't want to sort of get out our crystal balls, but I, would, I put forward in the chapter three observations that pretty much still hold, and that was written two years ago. The first is actually against this idea that the responsibility protect idea has been killed by Syria. A lot of people have said responsibility protect is dead because we didn't intervene in Syria. That's nonsense. As I, I outlined and I mentioned before, RTP is highly selective in its approach. It's actually a very legalized process. And because the Russians and the Chinese refused to endorse intervention, actually the conditions supposedly for RTP did not hold in, in Syria anyway. So it, it's not whether it's killed it or not. I mean, there might be something subsequent evolutions and so on, but I don't think it's a fair assessment to say that Syria has killed it. It was a very particular case in that case. More importantly, I think a second observation is that this question of non-direct intervention requires more scholarship and more investigation. There is a huge amount of discussion in Western media and policy circles about direct intervention. Why haven't we intervened in Syria? As I said, you know, we have, Britain has. America has, the European Union has. What is needed is not only more investigation, but also more accountability about those kinds of non-direct interventions. What's incredible about the migrant crisis at the moment in Europe is how much policymakers, and by extension the media and citizens, seem to divorce themselves uh, you know, from any kind of responsibility for this, as if the direct intervention in Iraq had nothing to do with the destabilization that has led to the migrant crisis. As if calling for Bashar al-Assad to go and supporting one side uh, in uh, a civil war has had nothing to do with the migrant crisis. It clearly has done. You know, Whether it's right or wrong is a different matter, but to claim that there has been no input whatsoever from Western governments is completely disingenuous and, and public should hold them to accountability. And the final and sort of slightly uh, sad uh, observation that I made uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter is that one would expect that Syria is not going to be an exception, that actually the way that the Middle East is structured at the moment, partly I think because of that change in, in US hegemony, but I do think that was inevitable anyway, I don't think that's something that could have changed, we're going to see more and more destabilization in the region, more and more conflicts in the region, but importantly, more and more forms of intervention, both by Western states and regional states, pursuing their own agendas, causing greater and greater instability uh, inside conflicts. And so, so I suppose I would conclude with a, a sad uh, uh, conclusion, really, that the kind of discussions that we're having today are absolutely relevant and very important, but I fear that we'll still be having them talking specifically about the Middle East for a long time to come. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. This is a brilliant way to end. Right, you've been subjected to a rich diet of kind of theoretical comparison and individual case studies. Feel free to uh, intervene, to ask questions about anything you've heard tonight, or in fact anything linked broadly to the topic. So who would like to kick off? Yes, Dr. Jones over there. <laughs> I'll start with the first one. Um, it seems to me from 
what some of you are saying, this is like a kind of back to the back to the future type thing, like back to the 1990s, where we're talking about the powerful West imposing its will everywhere in the world. When surely the reality is the West is not very powerful in determining outcomes, right? It particularly came across in what you said, Mike, that you know, it almost seems like you were saying the West wants to create rentier states when it intervenes. I mean, surely that's not the case, right? Surely it is the limits of Western power to determine outcomes on the ground and the agency of local uh, forces that actually shapes outcomes. And I think that's what came across in what Caroline was saying. So I invite you to row back from some of your more uh, robust presentations of Western imperialism. And the second question is um, a really easy one, like I say. I'm constantly struck by um, how intervention is often posited as the solution to the problems created by intervention, mm. which creates this constant cycle, mm. right? Which, which when you speak to policymakers, you're trying to desperately get them to break, you know, as if they're kind of addicted to constantly intervening. However, what do we do about I IS? <laughs> right? This is a force that most, that most people would accept needs to be destroyed. Right? It's barbaric, it's vicious, it's, it's killing people in the Middle East, it's killing people here. Non-intervention doesn't seem to be the answer, so what is the answer? Mike, do you want to start? Yes, you're absolutely right about resistances and, you know, you can talk about the circularity of power and so on. Um, but what I was alluding to was the extent to which um, in the United Nations, Western countries have um, en enormous influence. If you look at the way in which the... Um, directorates and agencies are divvied up, you know, the, the Western countries have uh, significant influence. Um, this may change with an, if there's a new uh, Secretary General from Bulgaria, maybe. Um, but what I'm trying to get at here is that there is a development in global economy which also takes away power from western states that is to say the the corporate interests mean that it's ex it's actually very very difficult for any state to control its economy unless it's a dictatorship or something um, and those corporate interests are predominantly located in Western countries. And governments in those Western countries are beholden to them and protecting them. Um, and you've only got to look at Luxembourg to appreciate what's happened there. Um, but, I, but coming back to my last point, I think it it shows actually that what you're saying is true. There is going to be a loss of a moral authority, an inability to dictate what goes on on the ground, and real problems in getting to grips with what the politics of a society are that you're intervening against. This is one of the main uh, critiques which is being made is that interveners do not understand the so-called local politics 
uh, and they don't understand what impact their international law will have. Uh, so it's a crisis, I think. Breaking the cycle of intervention, who wants to tackle that? I'll, I'll give uh, two, two cents on, on ISIS and so on. I completely agree um, with you, Lee, in terms of the, the, intervention, the intervention cycle, the idea that, you know, you know the, the, and, and it's interesting how frequently you hear that. Like, you know, again, with Syria, it's, well, you know, the solution would have been had the West intervened earlier, which, you know, 2013, 2012, something like that. Um, specifically with ISIS, I think I would argue that... Um, there is an, a major issue in the Middle East specifically at the moment, which is this question of state sovereignty, which is that states aren't effectively being granted their, so their sovereignty. It's, you know, you know the, the, the West, I mean, you could also argue Russia now in Syria, but that's an intervention, but particularly um, you know, led by the United States. Uh, there is uh, a norm of um, um, bypassing state sovereignty and just you know, in, intervening when you see a sort of a, di a direct terror threat, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, drone attacks in, in Yemen or, uh, or Pakistan or, uh, you know, bombing ISIS and, 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 and in, in Iraq and Syria. What strikes me is that as a consequence of that, you have had a complete um, removal of responsibility from the local governments for what is taking place there, especially the United States allies. So um, Turkey stands out, I think, uh, most of all, but also, you know, you could say, uh, to an extent, the, the, the Iraqi government, um, certainly the Syrian government most recently, but also, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and, and other states. And you have this other situation with, with, with ISIS, whereby, yes, you have this sort of international coalition that have agreed to, you know, attack ISIS, you know, all doing it together. But the only states in that coalition that see ISIS as the number one threat are the Western states. Mm. All the other states in it see ISIS as a peripheral threat. You know, most of the anti-Assad states that are involved in that see Bashar al-Assad as the number one threat to the region. They'd much rather be putting their attention there, with the exception of Turkey that sees the PKK slash PYD uh, um, uh, Kurdish forces as the greatest threat and indeed when Turkey joined the anti-ISIS co um, coalition in 2015 they directed most of their attacks against PKK forces in northern Iraq um, so you know against ISIS in the same way Russia has been bombing ISIS in Syria by attacking non-ISIS rebels in Syria you know so uh, until you actually have a situation I would argue whereby these governments do not expect the United States or whoever else to come in and deal with those problems on their behalf and actually realized in the case of Turkey, look, our policies have contributed to this monster on our doorstep, but instead of actually trying to deal with it, we're basically going to just um, invite the United States or, and, uh, and NATO to do it on our behalf. I don't think you're going to be able to sort of you know, break that cycle of intervention as such. I think if anything, what you need to do is, and it's very difficult in states like Iraq and Syria, obviously, that are failed states, to try wherever possible to, you know, build back that notion of state sovereignty, holding governments to, you know, uh, to account for what occurs within their borders. If they need help, help them, but don't take away the responsibility from themselves. And again, that's very perhaps utopian, idealistic, and so on. But in terms of, like, you know, a goal, I think that has to be, you know, somewhere down the line. Whereas at the moment, it seems to be all the policies are very, very short-term. They're designed to be uh, knee-jerk political reactions, as has been discussed in terms of, uh, seem to be doing something, but in the process you're contributing to this absolute destruction of the very notion of state sovereignty in the Middle East. Gloria. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to use up too much time um, 
to, 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 to give some space for other questions, but I think we can look at this from a different perspective as well. That is the question of narratives, which I've mentioned in, in, in my presentation. Because you, after, I mean, um, colonialism never was about, ne never really controlled the world mm. and, and con never really controlled social processes. So after 1990, the idea was, well, now the liberal way has won and, and has its own way. But that certainly wasn't the case, but it was interpreted like that. Now, these, these narratives, of course, create realities because people behave according to these, to these, um, to, to, to these understandings of, of, of how politics work. Now we have a different understanding. We see the West is declining in power. We see there's this kind of overstretch that, that people talk about. So the restraint that's coming from the West is also um, a, a, a narrative one because it, 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 it understands the, 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 the world as very complex and, and the, the means that are at the disposal of Western states as limited. So this is not necessarily a contradiction to, to, to what Mike, sa Mike says in, in, in my understanding. And obviously, I mean, that doesn't mean, I mean, I have no, uh, I have no idea of, of how to break the interventionist cycle um, because we are very much part of a continuous development um, of expansion and, 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 and pushing back by, by, by violent resistance to that. Um, so the, uh, the, the actors change, but the process is very similar to, to what we have seen for at least 200, two, 200 years. Briefly, Daesh cannot be militarily dis destroyed because it is a, a violent, coercive symptom of profound political structural weakness, profound political structural faults in the Iraqi state. So. The global coalition that's been formed to go after Daesh is just bombing it and has no commitment whatsoever to do anything about political transformation of its um, militarily imposed and soon to be deeply financially supported ruling elite in Iraq. Um, so, um, and that, Ara that ruling elite, having I've just met nearly all of them uh, in, a, in a bizarre whirlwind tour of Baghdad, um, has no, no understanding and uh, it's it, 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 it very reminiscent of the Cambodian they're ducking and diving and shifting, but they're, they're not in any way going to change their policies to, to meet uh, the court, to, to, to vanquish the causes that gave rise to Daesh. So what we're going to see is a son or daughter of Daesh once Daesh has been bombed off, off the, the territory mm -hmm. in Iraq and flourishes mm -hmm. in Syria. So I don't think there is a military solution for Daesh, but you can't come back because other people have got questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, you, sir. Sir, what's it? Uh, Maktad al-Sadr on sort of on the scene uh, in Iraq and um, yeah basically that's it really, really I'm, I'm chairing so I'm not really meant to talk um, all right uh, it didn't take long did it um, so for those who don't know Maktad al-Sadr uh, is an indigenous Iraqi political leader whereas 75 percent of the rest of the Iraqi ruling elite is exogenous come back after regime change he formed a popular and populist movement that came out of Iraqi society, unless the un unlike the vast majority of the Iraqi elites that, that came back and never formed grassroots movements um, in, in Iraq. And he mobilized roughly about 6,000 uh, protesters to take over slabs of the green zone, saying he won't, they won't leave until uh, the, the, the government has changed. Yeah. So Sadr's 
but Sutter was also, again, this is somewhat controversial, but I think undeniably true, was a key player in the Iraqi Civil War where his forces slaughtered thousands of Sunnis and were, was a key driver in uh, religiously cleansing Baghdad. So it, it's an interesting force. So him mobilizing had scared the ruling elite witless because they see it as a return to losing the hard-won, broadly uh, coercive monopoly they now have over Iraq, barring obviously the Daesh areas, which are now being pushed away from Baghdad. So his intervention is a recognition that this ruling elite is bankrupt, but also a move to undermine it, its, its coercive control as a way of putting pressure on it to leave or to reform. Um, what that means for the evolution of Iraqi politics going forward, I simply don't know. Uh, which, uh, um, I'll, I'll let you know in a couple of days when I've worked out what I've just learned. Um, but I suspect it's indicative of the unsustainability of the current political order in Iraq. And what, we, what we're seeing, I think, is a ri another rising crisis. So the Civil War, 2004 to 2008, uh, tamped down by a massive recommitment of American military force, which won't come again. So Iraq is sliding back into crisis. I think, as we saw with Daesh, the coercive monopoly is under challenge again. Coercive monopoly established by vast amounts of blood and treasure driven by the Americans after 2007. And so I think Iraq is moving back into, for want of a better term, uh, a civil war about the control of the state justified in ethno-sectarian terms. Yes. Who is politically, eco economically, and strategically benefiting from these interventions at the moment? Who wants to tackle that? Our pension fund is benefiting <laughs> a lot from the uh, resource stripping of Cambodia. I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it depends. I mean, certainly it'd be different for, for different case studies, but I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at the Cambodia case, uh, who's economically benefiting there? is, uh, you know, uh, the various companies of different types who have gone in and made money out of that situation. I mean, the Cambodian resources were basically sold at sort of, you know, fire sale prices to whoever, whoever wanted to buy them over the last 20 years during the uh, commodity boom. And so I think that's, uh, you know, and, and, and local elites who are in a position to sort of gatekeep those resources made huge amounts of money out of it. I mean, that, I think, would be a, a sort of, and, and that, you know, includes, you know, big Chinese companies, it includes big Western companies, it includes, uh, you know, um, uh, brands that you find in, you know, supermarkets here. So it, it's, you know, I, I think the incorporation of those countries into a global economic system, you know, uh, benefits the people who are able to exploit that. Chris, who's benefiting from the Syrian intervention and then Um Actually, no one, um, but, <laughs> but it's all about relative gains in, in Syria. So it, so it seems you know, d different actors uh, on one side or the other uh, just seem to be willing to destroy the Syrian state um, on either side, uh, provided the lump of ashes they get is bigger than the lump of ashes on the other side get. Um, it, it would seem, for example, at the moment that Russia has, you know, done very well out of the out of, out of it, its intervention but of course uh, as we're seeing today I would argue Is that political or economic? 
Well, um, it's, it's certainly not economical because the, you know, the Assad regime is bleeding them dry. Um, well, it's not actually bleeding them dry, but it is costing them a fair amount of money. It's political in terms of uh, R Russia's benefit. They've maneuvered their way out of isolation uh, after the back of the Ukraine crisis through their intervention in Syria. So in short term, you, you, you've seen some, some political gains. Um, but I would say, and sort of tying with all of these sort of questions of intervention, uh, the, the checks in the post you know, the, the migrant crisis, I would argue, is a direct consequence of the Iraq War of 2003. I think the destabilization of 2003 uh, has led to a huge amount of the problems that we're seeing and so on. So um, that, that took uh, 12 years to sort of you know, f f feel the benefit, uh, sorry, the, the negative uh, uh, impact of that. So who knows how long it's going to be until Russia feels the impact uh, of its supposed, you know, short-term victory in Syria at the moment. It might come in the form of uh, increases in domestic terrorism. Uh, it might come in the form of, you know, uh, the economic fallout from, you know, sort of uh, uh, a military uh, operation it possibly can't, uh, can't afford. Uh, uh, who knows? But again, it, I, I think it's uh, even these short, you know, I, I was reminded when Putin did his effective mission accomplished speech uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, of George Bush's famous landing on the Harrier, uh, on the, on the, on the um, uh, plane carrier uh, after the Iraq war of mission accomplishment. Of course, it's been a huge disaster for the United States. So again, you know, the long term, we don't know. Amanda. Um, I mean, if you look at, look at the situation, for example, with peace building intervention in the occupied Palestinian territory, if we, we think about, well, who's benefiting from that intervention? It's not just an economic benefit, it's also like a political benefit as well. And there's, I would, I'd argue that there's three or four different groups that are benefiting from that intervention. Um, the Israelis are, are obviously benefiting because it stabilised the situation. Um, you know, they, during the Second Intifada, Israel was be becoming increasingly isolated internationally um, about its occupation. And the peace building mission has actually managed to stabilise the situation to a certain degree, although we're seeing, I think, that that break the breakdown of that now. The other group that that's benefiting or has been benefiting from the intervention is um, local Palestinian elites. Um, that includes political elites and business elites um, who came back to the uh, mostly the West Bank but also Gaza after Oslo. Um, the links that they have as part of uh, regional capital, as part of Gulf capital, um, and and. To a certain extent, the, the Western uh, powers have benefited also because there's been a stabilization process that has been underpinned by uh, donor intervention, billions of dollars pouring into the OPT. I think the problem is, and it's kind of related to, to what Chris was saying as well, is that we're, I think we're seeing that unraveling now in the OPT. Um, we saw uh, what some people refer to as the third intifada uh, the knife intifada, what the French journalists are calling. Um, and I think that we'll increasingly see problems in terms of stability uh, in Palestine because of that. But there are clear benefits uh, to certain groups from that intervention. Can I, can I slightly disagree with Chris here, actually? Um, I mean, it costs a lot of money, but the costs of one group is always the gain of another. Um, so the in 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 the case uh, in the cases that we're looking at, I don't know who's pocketing the money, but someone is. Mm -hmm. um, and 
the tendency remains that where there is a, a, a big amount of money, um, opportunities to, 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 to enhance the economic gains uh, are greater. Um, so, so there. I mean, that's that's something that we that 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 we still have to tackle in a more systematic way. That is only partly in the book, but I mean, the the, the political economy of, of conflict and intervention in that way mm. needs to be looked at away from states, but from where the capital is. Mm. No, I, I say I, I would I would come back on that and say no, you're right. And I was I was looking in terms of state actors in that sense, but you're right yeah. in terms of non-state actors and sort of you know. A lot of the you know, the um, new wars literature and, uh, and and so on really looks at you know the the warlords inside Syria and of course in Turkey and elsewhere and you know yeah um, capital in terms of uh, arms companies and others and so on are clearly benefiting. So right now I, I was only rethinking in terms of, of states in yeah. terms of uh, maybe I'm just. So I'm not saying they're causing, but they're profiting. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Right. Any more questions? Yes, you sir. It's and then yeah. it's fascinating. To, to earlier uh, adventures. But I, I was just speaking uh, uh, as a former diplomat and briefly in the Prime Minister's office in 2003, uh, after the invasion, not, not before the invasion of Iraq. I mean, what would we do next time? I mean, I, you know, uh, <laughs> each intervention is clearly the product of a previous intervention, but how do we break the cycle? Um, because it doesn't, from what you're saying, it's simply going to continue like this. And, uh, but, but you say break the cycle, break the cycle to stop uh, intervening or do it better? Or do it better, yes. So how do we do it better? <laughs> what is it? Because yeah, the system you're saying was really uh, perhaps a new, new system. But that, you know, if we've got a couple of centuries to spare, we could develop that. But you know, <laughs> we may have to face with this next week or next month. Let me be bold and say I don't. I think the justification for intervention is is almost impossible to make. Mm. Uh, I think when I look at uh, certainly the, the decade of inter in intervention, and I look at the absolute mess. It's left in, left in its wake. And, and what I would have said in my own work is, aha, Iraq, the high watermark. And then Libya comes. And as if, like clockwork, the aftermath of the Libyan uh, intervention was clearly worse than the alleged bloodshed that, it, that, it, that, that, that was going to come if the intervention didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm left very, very skeptical that, that interventions can solve the problems that are identified and justified. Oh, it was, but, but this gets back to Lee's point. That this isn't a rational evidence-based, you know. Uh, David Cameron didn't scratch his chin in, in Downing Street and say, you know, on his desk, there is a shell case from the first shell fired from a battleship into Libya. And his chief foreign policy advisor said he has bathed in the glory of military action and smelled the cordite, and it's my job to stop him doing it again. I mean, we're not talking about rational, interest-driven politicians here. But I, sorry, I would just throw in as well. I mean, I, I, I would again. I'm just looking at you know, my experience of research in Syria. Um, there is a deep, deep imperialist mindset amongst Western policymakers when it comes to foreign policy. Deep. It's it's in in most institutions. It's in most media. The notion that when something happens somewhere, we must do something about it. And we can do something about it, so we should do something about it. And I think that is the cycle you need to break. You know, how you do that, who knows? 
But but well, no, it's, it's not about not, not worrying about it. But this, the, the, those three issues that, that that you know we you know we we're able to, you know, therefore we should, you know, those those ideas are so deeply ingrained, um, and not just amongst policymakers. I mean, amongst the general public and amongst, amongst the media, it is so deeply ingrained, and I think it's very, very difficult to break out of that. But most people don't even recognise it. Could I add yeah. something to that as well? I just, I just think that it's important to separate between the idea that obviously, for all of us, we would love to go and help people who are in trouble. I mean, and that's, you know, that's uncontroversial. But the kinds of people who run interventions are embedded in a political economy of their own, which means they have to in some ways. You know, I think there's the sort of structures that surround the, the, the structures of power that put certain people in positions where they're taking decisions over how we intervene, who we bomb, who we, you know, who, who we shoot. Those people are in a position where there are pressures on them that are determining their decision making, which they are not, you know, not able to just dispense with. And so I think, I think that it's, it's, it's the sort of structure of the intervention industry, if you like, and the, the structure of geopolitics that drives the decision making. And that is quite separate from just a sort of, you know, sort of vague moral imperative. And, and that, you know, those two things should not be confused. You know, who is going to be intervening? What decisions are they going to make? What interests are they going to respond to? And, and if, those, if those are negative, then, then you know, as, as they, they inevitably are, in, in these kind of interventionary uh, adventures that we've seen, then you're going to end up with a with an intervention that is entirely uh, oriented towards protecting interests of the already powerful. Okay. Uh, the gentleman with the beard first, and then the, the lady with the red shirt. Yes, thanks. Uh, yes, I think Yemen is uh, an example of interventionism almost um, beyond anything else that we could imagine. And it's, it's supported by um, the NATO countries, diplomatically, and, and even um, British um, troops um, in the command centre of the Saudi bombing, and of course they also blockade Yemen. And you think, well, how are I mean, you know, uh, international law, as I understand it, means that he who controls the capital uh, controls the country. And when you've got people like Hammond saying, well, actually, the legitimate government of Yemen is a former president who's fled to the second city, uh, Aden, which obviously wants to secede from Yemen anyway, and 90% of the supporters of Hadi don't want Yemen to exist at all, full stop. And then he flees the country and goes into hiding, as far as I can see, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and we, once you allow international law to be laughed at by Hammond saying, oh, this, is this bloke in exile and hiding represents a country, not the people that control the capital, then we ju we'd just be teased forever. And we saw that in Libya. Um, if I can just make that point. You know, uh, Cameron and the rest said, oh, the real government is the one in Benghazi. Stuff the one in Tripoli. Now we say the real government is not in Benghazi, Tripoli. It's not in Benghazi. It's in Tobruk, for Christ's sake. So it's, we, but we, we'll be teased forever if we just say, look, it's he who controls the capital controls the country and stuff. Cameron and Cameron making up <laughs> and big government wherever they Thank you. I, I'm going to take a, a series <laughs> of questions. Yeah, it's you. And then there's something. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to um, move things on as, as late hour, but I mean, it does, does rather strike me that the a lot of the discussion tonight has, has taken 2003 as a starting point, but uh, I, I just wondered what people think about interventions in former Yugoslavia. 
you know, and does that fit your model? Because at least on the surface, it's not been quite so catastrophic as these others. So how I don't totally see how that fits in. It's a brilliant question. We have an expert on the panel who can answer it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, thank you. A lot of scholars now in the region, in the Middle East, believe that Assad is the greatest threat. And I'm, I'm Lebanese, and I can say that's very true. Um, and Lebanon is also a country that's also been degraded to, you know, the battlefield of a lot of international um, intervention battles, if you if you like. Um, my question on Syria is: now that I may or may not agree that Assad is the biggest threat, uh, a lot of a lot of people agree that the only way you can get rid of him is through international intervention. Um, and I mean, looking back the last few years, you can see that obviously it's not the Gulf and it's not, and what you said about, you know, the, the balanced sort of, the classic case of a balanced intervention, that hasn't helped. Um, and so obviously I understand this is a big question, <laughs> your comments on how to get rid of him, but um, what sort of inter intervention would that require? Excellent. Are there any more questions for you? Yes, you, sir. And you, my God, they're breaking out. I wish you'd answer questions earlier on, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. It's kind of leading on from some of the things that have been discussed with regard to Yemen and uh, Syria. So I'm just wondering whether um, the intervention of non-Western Western allies, so I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia in Syria, Turkey in Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia in Yemen, I'm wondering whether these, this can be analyzed in the same framework as the Western interventions we've seen before. Does it owe anything to the previous Western interventions we've seen? And does this help us come to a slightly more nuanced view of a Western imperialism, or, and has, it, has this impacted more broadly than just the West? Brilliant. Um, Turkish imperialism, they have a long history. Mm. And the final question of the evening. First, I'd like to say that I agree with Chris that we're probably looking at a generation of quite violent instability in the Middle East. I, I see this more as a result of the failures of Arab politics, but it's likely to be the target of a great deal of balanced intervention. Uh, several questions, actually. First of all, at the risk of flogging a dead horse, Chris, how would you evaluate the relative effectiveness of the Russian and Iranian interventions in Syria at achieving their goals? Now, it there is, of course, a, a heavy tone here of, well, intervention doesn't work, intervention is futile. But it seems to me that there's a bit of an exercise in cherry picking here, in this case rotten cherries. It's not that hard to come up with counter arguments. Some, some of them aren't that recent. But for example, I would argue that the American intervention in Afghanistan, supporting the, the jihad against the Soviets, achieved its, its goals. It may have had some long-term consequences that may have been may have been unanticipated, but in, I think it's fair to say that in 1980, nobody in, in Washington was thinking beyond defeating the Soviets. Or the, the Anglo-American coup against Mossadegh, that was, I would say that was a success. It bought 25 years of cooperation in Tehran. So, uh, got those two, there's another question, I can feel it, no? You've got, that's, that's the two questions? Great, thank you. Right, we have six questions, and you all have two minutes to answer them. And unlike your initial ten minutes, 
which all of you bar two overran, uh, and because this is a seminar on non-intervention, I didn't intervene, but I will this time. <laughs> but I, and I shall be as, uh, as brutal and as inaccurate as George W. Bush's intervention, so keep that in mind. Seven questions. He who controls the capital should be recognized. Comments. Intervention in Yugoslavia, and I know who that's for. Mike, did it work, and if not, why? Is Syria, is Assad the greatest threat in Syria? If so, Chris, how do we get rid of him or not? Uh, non, that's a brilliant question. Non-Western intervention. Does it learn from Western intervention? Is it different? Russian-Iranian intervention in Syria. Another one for you, Chris. Uh, how successful has it been? Two very bold questions at the end, and a really good way <laughs> to end, I think. U.S. intervention in back in the jihad in Afghanistan in 1980, dot, 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 successful question mark if we don't talk about the unintended long unintended long uh, long-term consequences but a longer run of success the mo the coup against Mossadegh um, uh, that gave us 25 years of stability but fueled deep and visceral <laughs> suspicion and <laughs> hatred of the Iranians against the US and indeed the British because they were peripherally to blame for that Excellent. So removing a popular and democratically elected prime minister in Iran gave us 25 years. Was that a good thing? And then feel free to, to answer all of those or none of them, especially on Cambodia. <laughs> two, your two minutes starts now. I, I actually get a pass on those. I think there's people better qualified to answer than me, Tom. You're very honest and, and very <laughs> self-sacrificing for an academic. Mandy. Um, I just want to make a, a quick plea. We've, we've fallen back into the trap again of talking about intervention in terms of boots on the ground. And yeah. part of the, the whole yeah. underlying principle of this book was to look at intervention more broadly. Obviously, we're concerned with the crisis that we see uh, unfolding in the Middle East, and hence why there's been a huge focus on the situation in Syria, Iraq, etc. However, I would, I would argue that we really do need to look at a, a sociology of intervention. We need to understand why it is that it's, there's a continual types of intervention. It's not that where there's a decision to intervene. The, these kinds of intervention go on constantly and it's uh, deeply embedded in the international system for the reasons that I outlined at the beginning. Um, so I, I'm not even going to get into the discussion about whether interventions are good or bad. Part of the argument that, that I see clearly is that these interventions are deeply embedded within the international order. And that's probably my two minutes up. Excellent, uh, at least. Uh, uh, Chris, <laughs> you've got three questions. Um, all of, I, I think, uh, how do we get rid of Assad, uh, which probably uh, you'll say we don't need to, but that's another point. And Russia and Iranian intervention, what's it achieved in Syria? Or how good is it? And then you, if you want to tackle the bigger thing with Saudi and Turkey intervening, have we now got a non-Western model of intervention? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so... Uh, Getting, again, I, I completely agree with what Mandy was saying, firstly, which is that you know um, we do need to sort of try to step away from this approach um, to look at things more holistically. Um, that said, wading back into sort of the quagmire, um, uh, no, I don't, I, I think they, indeed, there has been numerous attempts over the last five years to get rid of Assad. Like I said, there has been a huge amount of intervention, even if it's not like, you know, sending troops into, ba into um, Damascus. Uh, I think that the Libya and Iraqi uh, cases of regime change have clearly shown that the dangers of post-regime instability are so great that anything along those lines, even if you want to get rid of Bashar al-Assad, is not the most advisable uh, route to go down. Um, the question of the non-Western intervention is, is, is fascinating, um, but really, of course, you know, not new. 
You know, there has been a huge amount of regional intervention in the, mid in the Middle East, you know, in, in just in the, the post-Second World War order. You know, we talk about Yemen, of course. Gamal Abdel Nasser basically, you know, buried his regime uh, in Yemen. Saudi Arabia, take note. It's not a good place to intervene in and so on. So, like, you know, we already do have those models and so on. I think what's interesting in terms of our sort of typology, I suppose, is that since, I suppose, since the end of the Cold War, we in the West seem to have got it into our head that, you know, intervention is something only done by Western states and for jolly good reasons, like looking at, you know, not pursuing our own interests, but actually, you know, saving people's lives. Uh, but as we've discussed, it's actually a highly selective uh, interpretation. And of course, what's happening in the non-Western actors in the Middle East are doing exactly the same. You know, Saudis are not saying we're going in to protect our interests. They're saying we're going in to protect a democratically elected regime like they care about that. Um, uh, and I suppose the, the, the point about, you know, being cher cherry-picking and sort of you know, Russian-Iranian intervention, I would go back to my point is that, again, we cannot tell. This has got to be seen in the long term. We cannot tell yet whether or not Russian-Iranian attempts to shore up the regime of, of Bashar al-Assad is going to have um, you know, long-term negative uh, consequences. I would profoundly disagree with your interpretation of, uh, of what happened in Afghanistan and the Mossadegh coup. It I, I would suggest that history shows that you know, that short-term benefit that you get reaps something so much worse the United States has had an awful relationship with Iran ever since the 1979 revolution. A huge amount of has got to do with its intervention against Mossadegh in 1953. It got 25 years of benefit, and ever since then, you know, it lost its most important regional ally as a consequence. So, so that's bad. Likewise, you know, I don't think you can uh, remove the the, the Al Qaeda factor from backing Mujahideen. You know, um, the fact that Osama bin Laden was armed by by the West, uh, you know, is. Excellent. Mike, Yugoslavia. Yeah. <laughs> well, her states don't last forever. And uh, when I pointed this out in Kosovo, uh, I was almost booed off the panel <laughs> because they were building a state. But someone had just given a presentation at Kosovo on the disintegration of Yugoslavia. All right. So um, how does it fit in? First of all, there was economic intervention. And you can argue that it was a consequence of the uh, government's failure to manage its economy. Uh, but there was a definite um, political intervention in the sense that the international um, financial institutions wanted their loans replayed, repaid from a central government um, organization, a central bank. Uh, and this annoyed those nationalists who didn't want that re-centralization uh, to occur. And if you follow Susan Woodward's argument, then economic intervention was occurring from the 1980s onward. Um, secondly, I think there was a very uh, strong reluctance to get involved in a civil war because uh, although it was happening in Europe, many European uh, governments appreciated that once you get involved in a civil war, you become part of the problem. Uh, and indeed, there was uh, some debate as to who was at fault in this civil war. Thirdly, um, yes, it had the intervention had brought peace in that the um, antagonists were brought to the uh, negotiating table but at a price. Uh, and I would argue that the price has been paid by uh, the poor people um, and that economically speaking, 
There is a great deal of uh, unemployment. It's 60% among youth. Um, many people work in the informal economy, which is run by oligarchs. Um, and you can argue, yes, but they're not killing each other. But I think it is important to realize that a big price has been paid. Those who have benefited significantly are the oligarchs, those who accumulated capital during the war and have invested it in high-rise buildings and rental properties and so on. But also, uh, those companies who are trying to mobilize capital towards those parts of the world where you can get cheap labor to produce uh, components that are finished with value added in the core parts of the capitalist world. So, for example, Volkswagen parts are made in Bosnia and Herzegovina because the labor is cheap and easily disciplined because of the huge uh, levels of unemployment. Got your argument. I'm going to have to cut you off there and give the last word to uh, Florian. Okay, I'll, th that's very that's very polite of you. I'm 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 so you know the British are so nice to me, and I even get the last word, <laughs> at least on the panel. Um, I'm I'm tackling two questions. The one of the non-Western intervention is very important. Um, I think uh, there there's the the forms of intervention change and take different forms, but they did so in the Western intervention as well, as we have seen over the decades. Um, what, what, what remains is the, the, the state-bounded kind of pooling of, of capital interest and political power. Um, and obviously there is a high capital density in the Gulf, and that goes a long way explaining why the Gulf countries explain, uh, intervene in the way they do. Um, the in, in for Iran, it's the foundations. For, for the Saudis, it's, it's the princes. So, so there, there is this connection very much there, and that, that drives it in a similar way. Um, on Afghanistan, because I'm the <coughs> I think I'm the Afghanistan guy here, no, no, and no. Um, <laughs> because Af Afghanistan, um, the, the resistance in Afghanistan against the Soviets ran for three years before the, or for <coughs> two and a half, um, on, on very limited means um, before the Americans um, decided to, to, to put money in. Um, so there was no strategic plan. It was it w they were hopping onto a train that already was moving. Um, secondly, empowering Pakistan in the way um, this intervention did um, nuclearized the, the, the India-Pakistan opposition. Um, thirdly, the Soviets never actually decided to intervene in Afghanistan to turn it into a Soviet country, but we, had a, we, have, a, we have protocols of, of the Politburo um, who, who, who met and never actually took a decision to intervene, but they kind of went into it more or less by accident because they were geriatric, they didn't really realize what they were getting themselves into, they didn't understand the consequences, they were afraid of the military, and so on. So there's, there's all these micro, micro developments that, that explain a lot of that. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, there are no strategic gains because that would mean you would aim for them and then get them. That's not what happened. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. We've run over by uh, 25 minutes, which <laughs> I uh, apologize for on behalf of my colleagues who took far too much time. Um, <laughs> but thank you all for staying, and I, I, I also thank my <coughs> colleagues for offering you such a rich diet of, 
of theory, comparison, and empirical case studies, which is why they took so much time. Um, thank you for coming. The flyers are down here. It's a wonderful book. Uh, I don't get any money for saying that. And we give you 20% off if you pick this flyer up simply because we kept you for 25 minutes longer. If we kept you for half an hour longer, we'd have given you 30% off. So pick up the flyers. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you, everyone, for contributing.